Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. The scripture for today's sermon is Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. The word of God speaks to us like this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? This is God's word to us. Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, um, let's pray together. Father, there's so much packed in those two verses. So much packed in there. And the thing that I want to grip us is the question posed. And it wasn't a question of you trying to locate Adam and Eve with GPS. You're asking a relational question. And you're actually asking it to all of us this morning and you're actually asking it to all of us every single day. So I ask now, living God, that you would just give us a foundation, a starting point as we roll out the gates into Genesis. That this morning would help us kind of tour the scenery around us, get a functional starting place so that as a church family, we can walk through your word. And more than anything this morning, I ask that you would let us hear your voice. Let us hear your voice. I ask all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So I had a friend, he's still a friend, but for about a decade, this gentleman and I got to talk together multiple times a week, and we had the privilege of having breakfast together two or three times a month. It was a really fun season for both of us. I really like this guy. This guy's not a follower of Jesus. In fact, he follows the teachings of the Ramtha School of Enlightenment, if any of you guys are familiar with that, or the Landmark Education Forum, which is another branch of Ramtha teachings. But he was passionate about people. He loved people and was curious about people like me, and he was zealous to see what he perceived being broken in the world being repaired. And so all of our conversations would inevitably drift to what's wrong with the world and how does it get made right? The, the fundamental breaking point for my friend and I is I viewed the world as created from nothing by a loving and brilliant and glorious and merciful God. He saw the world, on the other hand, as, and this is no joke, and this is not to throw shade on him. He believed that the earth is a spaceship. And on the spaceship, there's three kinds of people. There are passengers, there are crew members, and there are saboteurs. And for him, 
everything boiled down to this. He's like, hey, Kevin, you're asking the wrong question. The question is, is that person a crew member? Are they a saboteur? Are they a passenger? And I would always say, hey, I have some underlying questions for you, if that's okay. Who's flying the ship? And he would always say, doesn't matter. It only matters if you choose to be a passenger or a crew member or a saboteur. And I was like, no, 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 wait a minute. Where's the ship going? Doesn't matter, he would say. It only matters if you choose to be a passenger or a crew member or a saboteur. Who built the ship? I would ask him. Doesn't matter. Only matters if you choose to be a passenger, a crew member, and a saboteur. The place where all of our conversations always fell apart is I would ask my friend, hey, how do we understand what differentiates a crew member from a saboteur if we don't know where the ship is going? How do I know if I'm aiding in the mission of the ship or compromising the mission of the ship if I don't understand the fundamental mission of the ship? And those questions are why, as a church, we're going to spend the next several weeks together looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And I believe that Genesis is maybe the most critical book of the Bible that we as a people need to look at at this moment in our time. It's always important because it's God's word, but I think at this moment in time, Genesis is perhaps the most critical book that the people of God need to look at together, and there are many reasons for that, but perhaps the most basic reason I would offer in support of that thesis is we need a biblical worldview. We need a biblical worldview. And and let me invite you to consider that though many of us have biblical language, most of us do not operate according to a biblical worldview. We, We take biblical concepts, biblical words, biblical narratives, and we process them through all sorts of other worldviews. We don't do this on purpose, by the way. It's not like we're trying to like undermine God's word, we just take what's been formed in us and we try to process what's given to us. That's how a worldview functions. And most of us, I would invite you to consider, operate out of a technological worldview and a therapeutic worldview way more than we operate out of a biblical worldview. In 1992, Neil Postman educator and cultural critic, wrote this book called Technopoly. And in the book, he argues that a technopoly happens when a society deifies or elevates to the level of God technology. And here's his clearer or more specific definition. He says, a culture is a a technopoly when it seeks its authorization in technology finds its satisfactions in technology, and takes its orders from technology. I mean, here's a silly illustration to to help us understand how we've elevated technology to the position of God. If, If I told you that 
I read an article in Wired Magazine this morning, and in that article it details if you just take three fingernail clippings and five emails from your account and you send those fingernail clippings and those five emails to this tech startup, they can actually clone your DNA and create a robot that looks and acts exactly like you, and because of machine learning and artificial intelligence, it can take those five emails, understand how you operate, and communicate and function with small errors, basically just like you. So many of us would go, no way, that's crazy. No, it's not crazy, it's impossible. But but we think it's possible because we've elevated technology to the place of God. We've also done the same thing with therapy. And let me be really clear. I don't have a problem with therapy per se. In fact, I don't have any more problem with therapy or psychology than I have with technology, says the man preaching from an iPad, right? (laughs) I don't have any more problem with psychology than I do technology. What I want us to consider is the perils that we experience when we elevate psychology and therapy to the place of God. Let's use Postman's same categories. A therapeutic worldview seeks its authorization in therapy. It finds its satisfactions in therapy, which just means you go to therapeutic categories for your answers. And it takes its orders from therapy. It's when labels and diagnoses are elevated from the place of helpful to the place of world-defining and world-explaining that we operate from a therapeutic worldview. It's common across Christian churches, not just frontline church, though it happens here as well. It's common across Christian churches for a pastor to share either from the pulpit or in a one-on-one conversation Something that's basic from God's word, not some fringe interpretation like Paul saying, hey, this is the will of God for your sanctification that you avoid sexual immorality. And someone saying, man, that's really interesting. I, I want to talk with that, my counselor about that. I want to weigh that with my Enneagram coach. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. What have we done such that we've elevated helpful things and given them Lordship in our life. We've let helpful categories be defining and explaining categories for you. Let me say this to you respectfully. God's word can make way better sense of you to you than any number can. God's word can make way better sense to you and to me of our suffering than any other session, however helpful, however discerning it is. Like this is a moment for us where we need to learn how to orient God's word according to God's categories and let God tell us how things are, not us decide to weigh God's word with how we've decided things are outside of his word. It's a worldview issue for us. 
We have scientific worldviews, technological worldviews, consumeristic worldviews, therapeutic worldviews, and I want to see all of those reoriented under the worldview that the Bible gives us, God's Word lays out for us of how to make sense of who God is, why things are the way they are, what's broken, how what's broken gets repaired, where all of this is going. That's why we need Genesis. And beyond just establishing a biblical worldview, if you think about it, Genesis addresses head on every single issue that we're facing in our culture right now. Let me just catalog a few of them for you. Identity, sex, gender, human bodies, human rights, justice, evil, sin, judgment, relationships, conflict, how family dynamics degrade into dysfunction, and how family dynamics get redeemed. Redemption in general, work, vocation, rest, flourishing. You want me to go on? I mean, every single issue that we're dealing with as the hot button issue is addressed for us in Genesis. And what I believe to the core of my bones is what we need in this cultural moment is not another hot take. We need the word of God. We need the word of God. And God speaks to us and announces to us who we are, where we're going, how things end. Genesis tells us not just how things begin, but it points to how things end. This is such a powerful, glorious introduction to God's word. It's what it means to know God. It's what it means to be conformed in his image. It's what, what it means to be a part of his family. For those of you that are in this room right now and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you've never been a part of the church at all, what an amazing time for you to step into life at Frontline with us and just hear God explain himself on his own terms. Genesis is critical for establishing a biblical worldview. Genesis is critical for helping us address and understand all the hot button issues that are defining our cultural moment and our generations, not just one of them, but all the generations represented in this room. And Genesis is unfolded throughout the rest of the scriptures. Almost every other book of the Bible either quotes Genesis directly or makes allusions to the book of Genesis. So what we do with the book of Genesis is pretty important for how we understand the rest of the scriptures. How we read Genesis is really important for how we understand the rest of the scriptures. So let me just talk about Genesis for a second with you. My task with you this morning is to introduce the book, to sort of roll it all out and point at some of the pieces we're going to navigate, and maybe more importantly than highlighting the pieces we're going to navigate, talk about how we're going to navigate them, okay? Genesis is generally regarded by all scholars to be written by Moses. The first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, is written by Moses with slight editing. Obviously, he didn't write about his own death, and there are other things about there that other people helped Moses write. But Genesis, as the first book of the first five books of the Bible, was written by Moses. And Genesis is written with two distinct divisions, almost functions like two books in its own way. 
Chapters 1 to 11 give us the universal history of humanity. And chapters 12 to 50 give us a very specific history of one man, one family, one people, insignificant except for God chose them to be his agents of redemption in the world. 1 to 11, history of humanity generally, cosmically. 12 to 50, history of a specific man, a specific family, a specific people. Now, some try to read Genesis like a science textbook. Other people want to reject Genesis out of hand as this half-baked, remixed, thin, Aesop's fables kind of collection of myths from the ancient world. But, but, but the problem is we have to understand how to read Genesis and to understand that though Genesis was written to us or for us because it was written for all humankind, Genesis wasn't written to us. Genesis was written to the people of Israel as they came out of a generational season of slavery in another country, hearing other religions, other gods, other deities. And Genesis was written so that God could gather up a people together and say, let me explain to you why you're here. Let me explain to you who you are. Let me tell you where you're going. Let me explain to you who I am. The book of Genesis was written to establish identity for God and for a people, not to answer scientific questions. So there are times you're like, well, that thing couldn't have happened because if it was dark for longer than a 24-hour period, plants couldn't do photosynthesis the way they normally do. It's like, hey, that's a valid question, but it isn't the question that Genesis was written to answer because the people for whom it was written weren't asking that question. They were asking questions about how did God order the universe? And, And I want you to see Genesis written as four things. Genesis written as theology, Genesis written as cosmology, Genesis written as anthropology, and Genesis written as soteriology. I realize all those are $7 words. Let's explain them for a second. And I want to read to you a paragraph that our own Aaron Addison wrote. I couldn't find it better in any other book than what Aaron wrote. Here's what he says about Genesis as theology. The book of Genesis makes a theological argument about God, creation, humanity, and salvation. And every story, poem, and genealogy is included and masterfully framed up to make this argument. It doesn't answer all your scientific questions because that was never the point. Rather, this book aims to shape your theological vision and worldview. It serves as God's introduction to humanity revealing himself, his character, his goodness, and his power to us. It shows us what it means for God to be God. So Genesis presents to us theological portraits of the character of God, the power of God, the patience of God, the pursuit of God. And so instead of having focused modern scientific questions answered for us, Genesis presents us categories like creation, fall, 
redemption, restoration. God as creator, God as judge, God as redeemer. And it's not the questions that, that our schooling and our place in history have given rise to in our minds. It's not that they're unimportant. We just need to realize that we can't shake the book of Genesis and demand it to answer questions that the author was never trying to answer for people. When we talk about Genesis as cosmology, which that's the second category, cosmology explains how the pieces of discrete matter in the universe get ordered in a particular and meaningful way. So you could talk about the universe and say there is no purpose to it. There's just stuff out there. But a cosmology says, no, there is a divine entity who ordered the stuff out there for his loving and particular purposes. This is what Gordon Wenham says in his book on Genesis 1 to 11, which is really important. He says, the author of Genesis 1 shows that he was aware of other cosmologies and that he wrote not in dependence on them so much as in deliberate rejection of them. Now, some of you have, you know, taken Bible as literature classes in a secular university, or you've been interested in skeptical questions, or maybe you are a skeptic. And so many people say, man, have you ever read other ancient cosmologies, Enuma, Elish, the Epic of Gilgamesh? There's all these other Babylonian creation stories that sound a lot like Genesis. And what's brilliant about Genesis is that's the point. The author of Genesis wasn't going, hmm, how can I create a story of the origins of the earth and, and order it like, well, I'll just borrow from here and I'll borrow from here and I'll borrow from here. No, it is the divine author of Genesis, God himself, said, hey, I want you to understand who the real God is in distinction to all these other people that have fabricated stories about these needy, hungry gods that created people to feed them. I don't need anything, the God of the Bible says. I, I created out of an overflow of my delight in myself to love people so that they could enjoy me. There's no war in heaven that gave rise to all this. This was a delighted communion of a triune God in heaven that said, you know what would be amazing? If we shared this. This is perfect. This is beautiful. I read a piece by the late Tim Keller this week who said, before there was anything, there was God. And before there was anything, there was love because God was existing within the three persons of the Trinity completely in communion and satisfaction and holy love with himself. Seems like we should preach a couple sermons on that. I'll, I'll let Chad take care of that in the weeks to come. So we have Genesis as theology, Genesis as cosmology, Genesis as anthropology. Not just explaining God and the world, but explaining human beings. How did we get here? What are we? And Genesis tells us that humans are created in the image of God. Just stop and sit on that for a second. In fact, at every modern argument that's advanced 
for the sake of human rights and human dignity is predicated on a biblical anthropology, even if it rejects a biblical anthropology outright. The, the Bible teaches that humanity is the height of creation. But it also teaches us that humanity is sinful and rebellious, beautiful and broken, bearing in us the image of God himself. And yet we've taken it upon ourselves to be ruled by no one but ourselves. And therefore we have introduced calamity into our kind and into the world that we were tasked to rule over, not as gods, but in submission to the one who is God, reflecting his character, his nature, his love, his patience, and man, we have messed it up. We've messed it up. And even if you don't adhere to a biblical worldview or a biblical anthropology, you can be like my friend Tom, who's like, yeah, man, there are saboteurs on the ship. If that's, if that's a place you want to start, might I invite you to consider that the Bible explains why there are saboteurs on the ship. And the news gets worse because the Bible tells us all of us are saboteurs on the ship. Amen. See, the Bible isn't a story about good guys and bad guys. It's a story about one God who in his miraculous, holy, perfect, loving genius set out on a quest to create a people for himself and a place where they could enjoy him and depend on him forever. Something went badly wrong. And so we experience Genesis as soteriology, meaning a theology of how things get saved, how people get healed, how what's broken gets mended. And in that, we see salvation come through blessing. We see salvation come through covenant, which we're gonna get so much time to unpack the glories of what a covenant is, where God takes unilateral, one-sided covenants and says, I will do all the work to uphold my promise here. Even if you fail, I will keep my word. Salvation through blessing, salvation through covenant. We're also gonna see salvation through the shedding of blood and we see it very early in the book of Genesis. Because when Adam and Eve discover, after deciding to make their own meaning, to supply their own answers and be their own lords, they discover that they don't have any clothes on. And then that shame that comes with that for them, God covers over with skins of animals. Let me ask you this question. Where do you think he got those skins? He killed animals to provide them. So even in the beginning of creation, the first humans, Adam and Eve, see that their covering comes through the shedding of blood. We see salvation through blessing, salvation through covenant, salvation through the shedding of blood, and then we also see this glorious God thing in the beginning of Genesis. We see salvation through a remnant. 
And what we see God doing always is accomplishing his purposes in these upside down ways that we wouldn't expect. We think God's gonna come in, campaign for president, win the election in an overwhelming majority when in fact God accomplishes his purposes through women who can't have children and through one man that's destined to die just like everybody else. Every time we think everything is awash and broken and failed, we see God uphold his covenant and take a small remnant and say, now, I've promised I'm going to accomplish my purposes. Even if it looks like everything else is going to be wiped out, I'll hold back this one. We, we see that repeatedly. So let me just close this morning by telling you six questions I'm hoping you can answer by the time we're finished with Genesis. So you can just like, hey, man, this six things I'm hoping we accomplish. And you may hear Josh or Chad or others parse it out differently, but it's really the same. Here's six burdens your pastors have for us as a church, me included, during this time together in Genesis. Question number one, I'm praying that through our time in Genesis, you'll be able to answer with confidence and clarity, full-throated, without wavering, who you are that identity will be established not as a vapor or a mist, as a fog, but a steady, stable, sturdy thing among us. And we will realize as we submit ourselves to a biblical worldview that there are way more givens about us than we've been told. And there's way more glorious about the givens of our identity than we're being told right now. Whoever coined the phrase meat Legos to describe human bodies has missed the boat of the glorious purpose of humanity. I want us to be able to answer who we are and realize that there's way more to receive from God himself than we have to discover and define for ourselves. That's question one. Question two, I want us to be able to answer with humility, but with confidence, why we exist, why we're here as human beings, what is the purpose of the human race, and what are we supposed to accomplish with our lives, whether we're a drywaller or an attorney or a doctor or whatever. We can say, hey, this is why I exist as a human, and this is the way that I'm laboring within my particular vocation to advance the purposes God has for us as human beings. Who are we? Why do we exist? Question number three, I want us to be able to answer clearly, biblically, humbly, what's wrong here? Hey, what's gone wrong with us? to actually be able to use biblical categories to make sense of what's broken. What's, what is wrong? And what's the thing below the thing? Because we can talk about, well, people are selfish, or people are this, or people are uneducated. Yeah, but it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. What's the thing below the thing of what's wrong here? And then obviously, question number four, how does what's broken get fixed? How does what's broken in humanity get repaired? Because if we can answer that question clearly, we should make ourselves subservient 
to that reality, I would think. Who are we? Why do we exist? What's wrong here? How does what's broken get repaired? Question number five, who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? And we sing great songs as a church, I belong to you. Bought with love, bought with blood, I belong to you. And we answer that in a particular way as Christians. But a secular world is asking that same question all the time, albeit with different terms. I remember being a kid, (laughs) if I could expose my jam band lineage, I don't know what songs you guys listen to, but there was a band called Bloodkin, like an Allman Brothers-ish band. And they sang this song, Who Do You Belong To? And I remember the words all the time, who do you belong to? I'm sure it's not yourself. Who do you sing love songs to? Because you sing them all day long. And I remember asking that question as a younger man. I'm like, wait a minute, who do I belong to? Who has authority over my life? What being or collection of beings actually gets to tell me about who I am and what I'm for and where I'm going? And then question number six, this is the question God asks Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, 8. Where are you? Such an amazing question. God knows everything. He didn't need to put an apple tag or whatever those things are on Adam and Eve. Like, dadgummit, where are they? No, that's not the question he was asking. What's amazing is after they rebelled against him, he came after them. He didn't go, well, forget them. They made their own choice. They made their own bed. Let them sleep in it. No, after they rebelled against him, he comes after them. And they hide. And as they're hiding, thinking, thinking that they're actually hiding from something significant. When I was a kid, my dad, who's small like me, You know, we would go hiking or camping or whatever, and Dad would do stupid stuff like hide behind pencil trees just to be an idiot in the forest with us. And that's how dumb we are hiding in our sin as if we can get away from God. In in their rebellion, God comes after them, and they're hiding. And God says lovingly, relationally, invitationally, Hey, where are you? Where are you? And that's the question I want us to build into the habits of our lives such that we can answer it all the time. I regularly will open my heart before the Lord and say, God, here I am. Maybe it's a move of repentance. Maybe it's a move for asking God to strengthen me where I'm weak. Humble me where I'm arrogant. Correct me where I'm wrong. But this question that's posed to Adam and Eve in chapter 3, verse 8 of Genesis is posed to you every single moment of the day. Where are you? And my hope for every single one of us in this room is that we will find the answers to all those questions in the person of Jesus who entered into our world, lived the life we should have lived, 
offered himself sacrificially on a cross as a substitute for what we deserved to die and gives us his perfect life for all who will take it by faith and says, be human in me, be whole in me, be saved in me, find your purpose in me, find your future in me. Let's pray. Jesus, Jesus. It's not just that your father came after our first parents. You came after us. You came after us. And in all the places where we had been unfaithful, you were faithful. In fact, on the night you were betrayed, we see you in a garden where Adam and Eve failed in a garden, we find you faithful in a garden, submitting to the will of your Father, entrusting yourself to the Father, so that all his glorious purposes could be fulfilled in you. Awaken faith in all of us to build our lives on that truth. And God, would you let this season in Genesis 1 to 11 be fun for us, be world building for us. And I just had this image in my heart this morning, brothers and sisters, of like God building something new for all of us, not just individually, but collectively. And I had this sense of like where, where inappropriate or cracked foundations are being jackhammered up in this season. There's this tendency for some of us to like be afraid or grieve the loss of something that's being torn up. But if, if, if God loves us enough to build a solid foundation for us, he will love us enough to tear up or uproot foundations that we can't build a life on. So I'm just asking God that he would do that for us in this season. So God, would you do that? And would you orient all of our desires and our dreams as we move towards the table and the meal that Jesus gave us? And I ask in his name, amen.